My name is Andy. I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an array of incredible practitioners, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. If you're inspired by this conversation and you'd like to see it reach more people, you can help the Wonder Dome take flight by sharing it with friends and colleagues, subscribing, giving us a high star rating, and best of all, leaving a glowing review. If you'd like to go even further, consider becoming a monthly supporter. You'll help me keep the lights on and support a wide range of charitable causes. You can learn more at mindfulcreative.coach. Thanks in advance for helping us inspire the world. My guest today is Nadia Terencheski. Nadia is a transformational coach. I know that firsthand because she did some coaching work with me. And as you'll hear in our conversation, I attest to the power and impact that our time together had for me. It's something that sticks with me to this day. And that's the mark of someone who really knows how to hold space with these questions of what it actually means to transform who we are and really to transform how we see who we are. Because it's in that seeing, that understanding, that taking a possibility and and getting it all the way down maybe to our DNA, to the cellular level to really embody it, that Nadia navigates so gracefully and with such a commitment. Our conversation today explores primarily the work that she's doing with something called CU Money. CU is sort for conscious you. And uh, the ways in which we have built for ourselves a culture, a society, and a self-identity that holds up money as the golden ticket when it is in fact the golden cage. And what might it mean to start to shift to a world where resources, money, time, attention, energy, all start to flow, all start to converge where they're most needed because we are consciously connected to each other. We are living in what Nadia calls a conscious tribe. This conversation was so fun and so personally important to me because of the impact that Nadia has had in my life. I trust the impact that she'll have in yours, even if you only listen to this conversation. But certainly if you go deeper into the work that she's doing in the world, she works with individuals, organizations, leaders on every level to help people live with more ability to see themselves, to be compassionate towards themselves and others, to take ownership over their life, and to engage in truly deep and open dialogue with each other and service of a more conscious world. So let's settle in. And hear what Nadia has for us. Hi, Nadia. Hi, Andy. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Uh, It's such a treat. I'm feeling some nice uh, giddiness, kind of an effervescence right now to share space with you again. It's been at least a few months, probably more than a few months since last we got to we got to zoom across the interwebs and see each other as as screens on our computer screens here. Uh, well, you but, made a person in the meantime, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, that's right. I, so it's been more than three months because my son is now approaching five and a half months old. So yeah, it's been maybe probably more than half a year. Gosh. Mm. <laughs> but I'm feeling, I think I'm feeling that giddiness because the last time we were together, it was because I actually reached out to you for some, for some support and you did some coaching work with me. Uh, and I said this before we started recording, but the experience I had and the insights, like the sort of insights I had, but, but also the way that I experienced in my body and in sort of my psyche, those insights uh, are still with me in a very meaningful and essential way. Like the sort of the sort of one of those moments of like, oh, before 
there's a before and after moment for me that I really just want to honor you for about like, oh, I can't, I can't imagine going back to who I was before the conversation or to the level of awareness I had before. So I just really want to value you and thank you for that. It's really special. Oh, thank you for sharing that. That means a lot, obviously, as you know, in our line of work. And yeah, um, yeah and I think you're, you're right. There's something about what touches us in an uh, embodied way, right? Because we all had many, many coaching sessions and some of them were intellectually stimulating and and fantastic. But somehow what, what remains is always, how did I feel mm. when I had this insight? Mm. Mm. So that, that uh, resonated a lot, what you just shared. Mm, I'm so glad you've written this uh, really wonderful book called Conscious You. And I think what, I, and I also said this before the recording, but I, as we sit in this moment, we're recording this, I think it's January 18th. So it's Martin Luther King Day here in the States, celebrating a remarkable human who was part of a quite a interconnected community of remarkable humans who sacrificed a lot and carry a lot for our country here in the States. Um, yeah. What a good time uh, to be reminded of that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and we're, you know, there's just everything that's happened here. I, I'm really sort of lo locating myself in the States and what's happening in the States. But I recognize, as you alluded to, that there, that's ramifying around the world, the ripple effects of the attack on the Capitol. What, that symbolizes like there's all of this stuff that's really alive and present in the political landscape and in the global landscape that we could talk about. And I welcome us to talk about it in whatever way we want to, but I want to underline that, that when I invited you to the show, none of that had yet happened. We were still in the middle of the pandemic. Now you're here, all of that's happened. And in three months when people listen to this, all sorts of other stuff will have happened. The, the sense of why I really so admire and value is that you come to your work, as far as I can tell, from a place of deep sense-making, a deep kind of like the question, how do we understand more deeply, more truthfully, more accurately what's actually going on between us, inside of us, in groups, and how can we then, with that deeper understanding, actually shift patterns as opposed to repeating them ad infinitum. And so I just want to like invite us into that sense-making, understanding, shifting approach, as opposed to perhaps at least myself, there's a temptation that I want to have to just kind of like, Nadi, what do you think about what happened in the Capitol last week? Like, you know, tell me like what's going on in Germany right now. You know, like there's sort of all of that that I feel really, really drawn to, but I want to maybe try and hold the line and help us stay on the level that you so often work on. Hmm. Yeah. And, you know, and to your point, the, the sense making and, and sort of the narratives that we create, um, that was actually the motivation for the subtitle or the continued title of, of my book, right? Because the full title is Conscious You Become the Hero of Your Own Story. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was always exactly that idea is sort of how do I, how do I approach sense making within myself and within my own narrative, my own story? And what do I actually need to understand about where I have come from and the things that have formed my ability to make sense and the patterns that I've created as an effect in order to change that story and write one that makes me more content with life, that makes mm. me feel more connected to life, more in service of life, whatever you want to call that. Mm. Right? So, yeah. Mm. Mm. As you say that out loud, I'm struck by, and I don't know if this is true specifically for you, but perhaps we can still play with it. There's a sense in which if at some point you weren't the hero in your own story, then you were something else in your own story. Um, maybe, maybe, maybe the most likely alternative is the victim of your own story. But I wonder if you could kind of, pull on that thread a bit more. What, what's the, what's the possible, sh what are people shifting from when they consciously say, okay, I'm done with this over here. I need to really start to own my connectedness to life in a more conscious way. I need to author my life more consciously, like talk a bit more about that. Very much to your point, actually, Andy, I think many people and, you know, whether we would name it like that or not, but this sort of victimhood is something that 
for most of us, it's a place that is familiar, right? And I'm not excluding myself here by by any means. So, um, you know, we might not call ourselves a victim because there is a part of us that socially monitors what, you know, what we expect ourselves to say about ourselves. So there's there's that narrative, but then there's the feeling inside. And I meet a lot of people and including, uh, by the way, people who by all accounts are incredibly successful in what they do, right? Mm. Some of them are CEOs, high level executives. They, they've founded organizations. They, you know, they do well by all accounts, but somehow they still feel as if they're not running their own life. And mm. that essentially makes you be a victim. Mm. And, you know, in my book, there's um, sort of one model that I introduce or use. I'm, I'm pretty sure that you've heard of this idea of love it, change it, leave it. Mm. Right. So that's mm. that's sort of the, you know, what are the options that we have? We can either relax into it and learn to love it and accept it in a way we can we can change something or we can also choose to leave a situation. But what I've often found is is left out in this uh, triage of options is the fourth one, which most of us use a lot, and that's the option to suffer it. Mm. So we stay, but mm. in a constant state of um, complaint, whether it's external complaint or internal complaint, but there's this constant notion of something isn't quite right but I'm not leaving. I, I don't know how to love it. I don't know how to change it. So I suffer it. And that is essentially, I guess, the narrative that I'm, um, you know, hoping people will be able to move out of once they have this deeper understanding about themselves to go, mm. you know what, I don't actually need to suffer this anymore. There are mm. other options out there and, and not choosing is also choosing because it means to suffer it. So what else is there? Uh. I'm so glad you shared that distinction, the, especially the not choosing as a choice. There's, uh, I've had a few experiences like this in the past, really in the past year. I think this past year with the, the pandemic and, you know, there's so much we could say about that. But the headline I'm tuning into is it, it, it's forced people to look at, it seems to me to have forced more people than usual to look at patterns in their life, whether those are social patterns or professional patterns or personal patterns. And go like, wait a minute, this sucks. And and in the suckiness of the pandemic, now that I'm like physically isolated, that thing that kind of sort of sucked, but that I'd learned to suffer now really sucks. And I don't think I want to go back to it. I'm not. Yeah. So I've seen that shift, which has been exciting because my hope if there's, if we're ever going to get, get any light in between the kind of intense racing command and control we can solve everything every problem is yet just another we just put another kind of technical technical solution on the problem and eventually it'll all work right like there's sort of this week there's just a lot of people are seeing the kind of impossibility of that solving every problem approach to life but then they're left with like well i don't well but what else do i do mm. yeah no absolutely right? so i think in many ways covid has been a huge pattern breaker, right? Yes. So we were not able to continue what we've just always done out of an uh, sort of automatic response to life. And that includes, for example, what I noticed in this past year. So A, I didn't travel anymore and travel was a huge part of my professional life. Mm -hmm. I would constantly be flying you know, for sure across Europe, but also to the Middle East or to the US to work with teams, to work with individual clients. And and putting a stop to this travel has actually brought me to a point of evaluating, you know, does that make sense? Like, is that is that sustainable? And of course, back in my mind already knew the answer to that could clearly only be no. But, you know, I was so caught in the doing of things that mm. to put a stop to that felt nearly impossible. Now life has put a stop to it. And I've really uh, begun looking at how do I even conduct my own business? And my decision is I will not just fly to uh, the U.S. for a two-day team event anymore because it's not sustainable. And mm. because, A, mm. either we can do it uh, online or if um, they really want to have somebody face-to-face -face and that once that's possible again, then there, you know, there are thousands of amazing coaches in the U.S., so it doesn't have to be me. Mm. So that's one of those things, right? Mm. And to be, be a lot more mindful about my, my habitual patterns of, of using resources on this planet. Another one has been just how much I consume. I have 
barely bought anything during this last year and I haven't missed it one bit, right? So new, no new clothing, um, very few gadgets actually even. It's, it's like everything felt reduced and I didn't need all of this stuff anymore. And that to me was fascinating because I mm. thought, oh my God, look at all the money that you kept spending again, just out of habit in a way, not even out of this conscious, I want that. And that's, you know, that will benefit my life and make me feel more alive. It was just sort of, I want it, I can have it. So let's buy it. And that stopped. And, and, you know, and of course, like many other people also realizing the things that I really, truly miss it's people. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's people and it's experiences going to the movies, going to ballet, um, you know, traveling to see friends that live uh, abroad, those things have become even more essential in my inner understanding about the narrative of my life. Mm. Yeah. So I think in mm. some ways, COVID has also been, uh, a, you know, a gift that at least for those of us who can afford to have these reflections, and mm. I'm aware that I'm, you know, part of the group that can afford to have these reflections, that really made me stop and go, what, what, what is essential in my life? Mm. Mm. I love that. The, the insight that I'm tuning into that's landing with me quite a lot right now is this sort of, there's something around space that's coming up, like the way in which your default pattern of travel or, or consumption, which is yours in particular, is a reflection of a larger collective default pattern of filling up every moment possible of attention, every moment of, of energy with some kind of activity, uh, with some kind of doing, some kind of consumption, right? And we sort of look around and see that pattern reflected in our collective institutions, in our personal lives. And there's a possibility that simply just by like stepping out from them or being forced to step out to, because when you're in it, it's like, no, why would I stop traveling? Right. I want to honor that the sort of default pattern has momentum. It has a sort yeah. of inertia to it. But then once you're forced to step out, you suddenly are able to look and see and feel things that were not accessible to you in the midst of it. Yeah. And absolutely. I wonder if that, yeah. So maybe you could just, does that show up? How does that, that space making or, zooming out or stepping out from under that feels like actually a really important move to try and help people make pandemic or no. Does that, is that right? Is that something you work with? It, it is. And it has, um, you know, been accentuated actually by what we also shared before we started recording, because you asked me, you know, what sort of brought meaning to my life during, during these trying months, which, you know, which they were and continue to be. And I, I shared with you that one of the things that really is bringing joy is that I uh, wrote and um, delivered a program that is mainly, well, in, entirely now delivered online, which is called CU Money. And it's based on the ideas of my mentor, Peter Koenig and his money work. Um, that that deepened this process for me. And now I feel I uh, deepened this process in other people as well. And, you know, in a nutshell, the idea is here that we begin to realize at this juncture in our, in our lives and our societal development, at least in our neck of the woods, mm -hmm. that the paradigm that we've been born into and nearly spoon-fed, which is I need to work in order to make money, um, that gives me the option that one day I will have accumulated enough of this magical substance money to then step out of the hamster wheel and start doing what I want. But of course, most people never really get to that point because either they, um, you know, they, they belong to the 99% who are struggling constantly to make ends meet. So it's not really a luxury that they have to think about, um, but the ones that could, and, you know, you and I know people who belong into, in this bracket of the 1%, what they begin to realize is that the amount of money that they feel they need to have in order to make that choice is a moving target. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if they once in their 20s thought, you know, one day I'll have 10K in my bank account and I'll be made, you know, then I'm free. <laughs> I can, you know, choose anything that I want to do and I will feel completely safe. Once they have 10K, suddenly it's 50K. Once they have 50, it's 200K. Once they have 200, 
it's uh, you know, it's a million. So it, it, it just keeps moving up. And I think what we have also become accustomed to, because that creates this, this aching void in our soul to be busy with things that we don't actually enjoy on a deep level that, that actually doesn't bring um, sustenance to, to our soul. If, you know, if you want to put it slightly dramatically, um, we started consuming because that's the band-aid that's sort of ready and easy at hand. So we just slap something on there, you know, moment, momentarily feel better about ourselves and the world um, and sort of forget that the actual thing that we were after is a deeper sense of fulfillment. Mm -hmm. And so for me, writing the program for one and really getting deep into these ideas that Peter Koenig developed 30 years ago and, 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 you know, putting them into a language that I feel is more accessible to, pe uh, to, to people worldwide has actually really shifted my own understanding on a deeper level. Because what, what Peter always proposed is, well, if that's the old world that made sense and was useful for many, many years, certainly since, um, you know, the rise of, or the dawn of industrialization, but now we have reached a point where most people don't crave more material things if you want if you ask them what they want it's it's immaterial stuff you know it's it's love it's time it's experiences um that excite them it's you know it's things that are not so easily bought with money if at all mm -hmm. and so the question is how do we how do we leave this old paradigm behind and move into the new so i actually feel that one of the essential conversations we need to have is a conversation about money and to really analyze our personal relationship with money, the narrative that we've collectively and as societies built around money and how we step out of this trap because in that golden cage, we'll never find what we're looking for. And that's one of the big insights for me during this last year. Mm. It's a powerful insight and I'm finding myself curious how that how you've held that conversation or how you've he heard others hold it since you've created these group learning containers where people are stepping in, stepping in with what, as you said, it was kind of the spoon fed, maybe even the kind of injected into the bloodstream sense of how the world works. And you're standing here saying it doesn't have to work that way. Yeah. In, in fact, in fact, there's evidence, there's lived evidence that you can experience in your own life that there's a that there's a way cooler <laughs> way to to live. And I wonder just how have you been holding that, and and what have you been seeing happening for people as they start to try and get that out of their bloodstream and see something new. Well, in in many ways, it's a it's you know it's a shared experiment if you want, right? Because what we're proposing, what what Peter Koenig has been proposing for many many years, is that there is a more natural way to be in the world, at least in this, in again in our neck of the world, this affluent world that we live in, where you begin a different cycle where you begin to do what you love to do and make the experience that somehow life will provide for you. And that includes your monetary needs, but goes way beyond them. Mm -hmm. And it might mean, you know, that you don't end up being a millionaire, not having two villas on you know, some remote Island. But my uh, point there would also be if you really, really do what you love every day, then again, you might actually figure out that what you what you need in terms of material possessions and gains is much less than you ever thought possible, mm. Mm. Um, and that you you know when you really understand that your internal sense of security will never truly be satisfied by money, um, that creates something new. Mm. And so for me, a big uh, gain in this program is to have this conversation collectively because it, of course in the beginning to many it feels like a giant lie right so you know how how is that even possible and how privileged is it to think about life that way and what about the people who you know struggle every day and are, are poor is that just a question of their inability to step freely into this you know new mm. amazing uh, land of possibilities and, and to have all of these conversations and then to begin to notice what shifts in my own understanding. And, you know, and I can actually, maybe in many ways, I'm a good poster child for the change that happens because as a little anecdote, when, when I was little, when I was a little girl, my mom always said, when people asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, 
I said, I want to be rich. And I think that was very <laughs> much based in my experience of coming from, you know, fairly humble, from a fairly humble background. We weren't poor by any means, but compared to the very affluent neighborhood in which I grew up in, in Germany, my family wasn't that well off. So I had a lot of moments of comparing myself to what others, others had, how they lived, you know, the kind of gifts that they got to their birthdays. Um, so somehow being rich played a role for me. And again, also in a, um, not just in my own narrative, in my own sense making, but it was nearly an intergenerational thing where I come from a, a family of immigrants on my dad's side who grew up with extreme poverty and, you know, entering the war. So all of that stuff also landed in my own genetic code, if you want, or at least epigenetic code mm -hmm. of thinking that money was going to fix this. And so what happened over the years is as I changed my coaching practice and I became a high-end coach in the sense that I'm, you know, rather expensive compared to other coaches in, in the market and, and, you know, and then feeling like, oh, now I have made it. Now I can ask for prices that, you know, that's sort of the top 1% of coaches worldwide. But realizing it didn't satisfy anything on a deeper level. Mm. It it was an important step on my path. But what happened through this dealing with money um, while I was writing the, the CU Money program, suddenly there was a sense of relaxation on, on a level that I hadn't been looking for, frankly, and find so wonderful right now because I realized the goal of becoming rich, it's gone. I just don't have that anymore. Yeah. Oh, and, awesome. you know, to the point where I now think together with my wife, actually, you know, if we if we will make more money in the future, which is a distinct possibility with what we're, you know, the business we have right now, which is, yeah, you know, very, uh, very good business, I guess, for the time that we're living in and the sort of the push towards digitalization and, you know, programs like CU Money being uh, just more on people's radar as a possibility for learning, all of that. So there might be more money in our future. But what we've both decided is the money that we're making, the only value that has for us is for our goal of creating a more inclusive community. Mm. So, For example, mm. I would love to buy something where people can live, but it's way beyond the point now where I have these dreams about a penthouse apartment in which she and I will live in, you know, in this, in this golden uh, crystal tower like that. <laughs> it just doesn't interest me anymore. Yeah. So something on a very fundamental level has shifted in terms of what is the deepest point of feeling value and feeling as if I'm contributing to life. Mm -hmm. And that for me has been magical. And I now see the same sort of shift happening in people who, who engage on this, in this conversation with us and who stay in this, this journey of self-exploration. Yeah. Oh, that's so, so does beautiful. That, does that answer that question? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. There's a lot coming up for me here. Maybe, uh, the thing that's most pulling me actually connects to something you said near the top of the call around this recognition that uh, when something, when you feel a certain way, when it gets in your body, there's a different kind of knowing and a different kind of expression that no amount of however coruscatingly brilliant, intellectual, conceptual, no amount of that can substitute. And I'm wondering, let me see what I'm wondering. I know that, for instance, that there, at least in previous iterations, I don't know if she's still involved, but you actually have an embodiment coach, a woman named Rivka. I don't, what, what's Rivka's last name? Yeah, Rivka Halberstadt. Halberstadt, yeah. So she is, is actually helping the group hold that question of knowing what you just described and that you now know, you talked about this kind of ease and peace and just kind of like the penthouse, the crystal tower penthouse just has no pull, right? Even that word pull has kind of a bodily sense of like mm. movement towards. I wonder if you you could just talk more about that in the context of this question of, of letting go of, let me say one more thing. What I'm tuning into is in a way you have 
maybe on the epigenetic level, we can sort of speak literally or metaphorically, but you have sort of reconfigured or perhaps even extracted or let go of or released this kind of collective burden or collective belief about what money does for us, which is that mm -hmm. eventually when we have enough, we'll be free. You've yeah. just released that. It's not, it's literally not in your body anymore, yeah. at least as far as I can tell. And so yeah. I wonder if you could talk more about that part of the process or more generally about what's up with this sort of embodiment work in, the yeah. work in your world. So, you know, interestingly, even though people don't um, necessarily expect that, but dealing with money becomes a very physical process. Mm -hmm. And the reason why that is the case is, of course, connected to why any great coaching is ultimately a very physical process, because unless an insight fully lands in your body, it's not really an insight. It's an, you know, it's an idea. It's, mm. it's a concept, mm. but when it makes sense on a cellular level, that's when things begin to change as to your testimony from the start of this conversation. Um, so interestingly, we've changed our approach to how we use embodiment um, in the CU Money program slightly. So we have, you know, two great embodiment coaches. Actually, Rivka is one of them. She was part of the, the first English-speaking group that we ran. And right now I'm working with a coach called Sandra Gärtner, who's a German uh, embodiment coach who's helping me with the German cohort. What we realized, though, is that I feel the type of body work that they add is maybe even something for sort of the next level um, of deep dive into integrating this in, in your life. Mm -hmm. Because I realized that in the first iteration of the program, sort of when you, you know, when you first get confronted with all of these ideas, there's probably even sort of a lower threshold Uh, approach to body work that is necessary. So I felt um, people were partly pushed too far out of their comfort zone when it mm. came to working mm. with the body in, in that particular way that they offered. So what we've now done is I use the body in all the sessions that I do quite consciously. And having worked with these two great embodiment coaches that has made me also more aware of how to do that. And, and you know, what questions might be that I can ask or uh, the, the occasional exercise that I might add. Um, but we're not having explicitly an embodiment coach in the program anymore. But I'm now thinking with Rivka, for example, about what could we create nearly as an ongoing coaching program that comes afterwards that helps people with the true integration of their insights into everyday life. Mm. Right. So mm. it, you know, it, it made me also quite aware and that was nearly a, a bit of a sad process when we made that decision, because I realized in so many ways, we live in such a disembodied culture that including the body in such a deliberate way, um was you know it, it irritated a lot of people like they didn't mm. quite know what to do with that um mm. and you know that doesn't make me any less convinced how important that piece of work is if anything even more and i think we need to find different ways to get that into people's attention because at this moment in time it's quite often so that body and coaching feels like an add-on You know, it's sort of if you go to conferences, sort of the filler that happens in the breaks. Let's also do something with our body, completely <laughs> yeah. you know, unaware that our body is the thing that is present this whole time. And anything <laughs> you learn or don't learn is somehow connected to your level of awareness in your body at every moment in the conference. Mm -hmm. uh, so there, there's something about that that I find quite interesting. But we, you know, have since adapted the program a little bit to cater to where people are at in, in yeah. this moment in their journey. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's so and, cool. Yeah. But, you know, to your point, I really think what I see in CU Money a lot is when the penny drops for somebody, it is an incredibly embodied experience in the sense that most people either start to laugh or to cry when, when they get it, right? Because suddenly there's such a release of tension that something in them just lets go. Um, and those are the moments that, um, you know, make this worth my, my time and my attention because it's just amazing to see when something in the person really lets go and is integrated and you go, this is one of those turning points. Like after this experience, they will not be the same person as they were before because something has shifted. Oh, that's so cool. I have a few moments in my life, although not necessarily specifically related to money, 
but related to that quality of letting go, I, I think of it almost as sort of like releasing a burden or setting down a burden that you've unconsciously been carrying or that I had unconsciously been carrying. It's such a gift to have to experience that, not to just know it as a possibility, but really that's a moment that there's some sort of, there's some sort of invisible demarcation between who, who you thought you were before and who you, who you are now. Yeah. And, you know, and I believe those are the moments when we're truly beginning to, you know, become the heroes of our own story where we, <laughs> where we begin to, um, you know, take life and really embrace the possibility of us being alive in life fully. And that's what I mean by hero, right? So yeah. I, I think the title can sometimes be a bit misconstrued because it's really not about this becoming this heroic person. It's about becoming alive and living a life that is self-authored. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I, I want to touch on something you said, and so I'll get to it around this idea of building a more inclusive world. But I just want to underline that, and maybe this connects now that I'm saying it out loud, but the the tragedy that we have built a world for ourselves where aliveness is actually not a given that that aliveness is something by virtue of all of the ways, maybe we've disembodied ourselves we could get, I mean, I'd actually, maybe let's, I'd love to hear you riff on this. Like, why is it that aliveness that you speak to that moment where you just, just like laugh because you finally get it or you cry because you finally get it. Say more about why that is so elusive or what, what's up with that? How much of that is just, just part of our journey as humans versus part of the worlds collectively that we've created for ourselves? Well, I, you know, I suppose there are many different uh, reasons why we have gotten to this point. And, you know, just to, touch on a few of them I you know I, I look at how people um, recount their stories of how they were raised at home and how they were being dealt with when they were children and of course all children have very natural and immediate access to all range of emotions yeah, yeah. And as you know as a as a dad of two young kids like there's there's very little filter and they just go for it like whatever is there is there and it's there yeah I mean they're just alive right yes. and then yeah. because parents um tend to get overwhelmed because it you know that requires your constant attention and and you have to deal with that in some respect and you have to to stay responsive to it and then out of your own patterning out of the overwhelm in the moment whatever that might be um we begin to restrict children in their expressiveness right and we mm. give them rails and mm. part of these rails are you know, maybe necessary and healthy because it's part of being socialized in a way to, you know, to learn that not at any point in time can you, you know, thump your fist on the table and start crying because you're not getting the French fries. Unless, of course, you, you know, you make it to be the president of the United States. And I guess you can, but, <laughs> you know, for most people, we learn that that's not okay. Right. Yeah. But in this becoming socialized, a lot is trimmed away in our expressiveness that is actually tragic. And what mm -hmm. we learn is that certain feelings are not wanted. They're not okay. They're not, they're not even just not applauded. They might be um, punished or they might mm -hmm. be ignored or they might mm -hmm. be met with, um, you know, somebody refusing us a love and the sense of belonging. So, we we learn to moderate ourselves constantly and it's nearly as if this useful tool of becoming socialized has created a corset that has become so tight for many of us mm -hmm. that we hardly know how to breathe anymore. Mm -hmm. And then having feelings when we live in this corset becomes scary, right? And and I, I've seen people, you know, even in the programs that I'm running right now, where often people start crying at some point or other in, in, in the CM money program, for example. And then people afterwards write me emails and go, you know, Oh my God, I, I, you know, it made me feel very uncomfortable to see him cry in this session because I really didn't know mm -hmm. what to do with that. Mm -hmm. So we become incapable of having just a normal human empathic response to ourselves and or others. 
So I think, you know, that's one of the big reasons. And it's, that's universal in most cultures, I would say, that our parents didn't really quite know how to deal with this any other way because they hadn't experienced this any other way than they teach us. And especially with emotions that for whatever reason, they don't know how to handle, whether they're anger or sadness um, you know, or, or happiness or any kind of expressiveness that's too much. And then we begin to fold ourselves into this tiny little parcel of a person. And by the time we're you know, we're 30, there's, there's no room left. So for me, the work you and I do is very much about unfolding this tiny origami, you know, of a person <laughs> to see, you know, look at this, look at how beautiful this whole thing is and how much more you see when you have the whole sheet of paper and not just this, you know, this tiny box that we folded ourselves into. So beautifully spoken. Thank you. Yeah, just got this. I think that's the the thing I want to underline amongst all of that is this recognition of the sort of dimensionality and depth. Like there, that little origami piece may even be quite beautiful. Look yeah. at that. Look at that elegant, perfectly sculpted swan. Right. But it is still ultimately constrained to that shape. And, yeah. and what I'm tuning into is you're, you invite people in this just to sort of as best they're able to start to open up facets of that shape and start to see that, there's so much more range accessible to us as adults, as adults, even that word adult is in its way, a kind of constraining shape. Yeah, and, no, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, and then to be playful with this and go, well, I could also fold myself into a unicorn or it could be an <laughs> elephant or, you know, sort of to, to continue playing with that, because of course it's amazing that we can shape ourselves, but to, not be so exclusive and fixated on one particular form. I, I often feel that this fixation on it has to be this way as something that is extremely limiting for ourselves and for other people. So for me, you know, in essence, the process of becoming more of who we are, of unfolding this sheet of origami has, has essentially to do with sort of four steps that are a constant lifelong practice so there's something about self-reflection and you know and being able to not just be in myself but to look at myself mm -hmm. and to understand the why behind the things that I do and the choices that I make then the next step for me is around compassion self-compassion right to mm -hmm. to forgive myself for being a fallible human being for making mistakes, for not being perfect, for being as my, uh, there's a network in, in the UK that I work with, they're called the Camarados. And, and one of their mantras is sort of everybody's a little shit sometimes, right? So to have <laughs> compassion with the fact that I'm a little shit sometimes and that that's okay, because if I cannot accept that in me, Mm. I, I cannot possibly mm. have compassion with you when you are little shit sometimes, which, you know, which happens. Yeah. And, and then the third piece for me is about the ownership and assuming responsibility, you know, to, to consciously, when we go back to the four options of uh, to, to love it, to change it, to leave it or to suffer it, to make a really deliberate and conscious choice mm. and not just sit there and say, well, this is just how I uh, who I am or how I am. This is just, you know, this is just my organization. This is how it's always been. But to go, no, there is, there are choices in life and I have the power to exercise these choices. And even if I just sit here, I'm still making a choice. Yeah. Right. And then the final piece for me has to do with relationship because I realized we don't exist in a vacuum. Right. And our sense of self is also not generated in a vacuum. Um, our sense of identity is something that happens in this constant process of dialogue and being mirrored by other people. So our capacity to hold deep dialogues is, for me, the fourth component of somebody who wakes up, mm. right? And these four steps of self-reflection, self-compassion, ownership, and, and deep dialogue uh, I believe practices that we have to deepen and hone and, 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 and practice our entire lives. They don't go away. Right. So becoming the hero of my own story is not a one moment in time mm. experience is a constant emergent practice. Mm. Mm. You said earlier something to the effect of 
if if money comes to you, which it which it seems likely to, the excitement you feel about that possibility is in connection to your mission or your capacity to make. Could you say it in your words? I heard something about inclusive and. Yeah, it's it's about building community, right? Mm-hmm. So I I think from a you know next to wanting to be rich as a little girl, the other yeah. passion that I always had and the other. Um, big thing that brought me joy was to be in community. So my, you know, purpose in life, if you want to call it that, is to build more conscious communities, mm. to build conscious mm. tribes, to build places where people have a deep sense of belonging and where they can spend time with people um, that maybe are quite different from them in, in you know, sort of uh, external measures that you could take, whether that's income or skin color or gender or sexual orientation or any of these markers. But where on a on a values level, you are in resonance with those people and you feel that you will be heard and received as on, on that level with, yeah, with, with integrity and attention. And for me, that wish is also present in my own life. So I have a very active social life together with my wife. And one of my biggest joys in life would be to create a physical place where we can invite people to be with us and possibly even to to live with us, right? So, you know, again, the dream has moved from the amazing penthouse where I lived this, you know, luxurious, but rather isolated life with her to a place of community. So, you know, that's where I would now spend money if and when that comes into my life with more abundance is to think about how can I create that? Because, you know, the older I get, I also realize money that I didn't share with, with somebody is actually a bit empty. (sighs) Yeah. Yeah. So then I think about when you describe a conscious tribe, I'm imagining that or I'm interpreting that to mean like a place where everyone involved to the best is that they're able is being self-reflective and self-compassionate and taking ownership and getting in deep dialogue with each other. Is that right? Absolutely. And, you know, to me, this idea of conscious tribes is, is, you know, it's actually a very vague and ex- inclusive idea if you if you want, because that could be your relationship, that could be your family, it could be your family of choice, it can be uh, y- your team and your organization, it can be your entire organization. And ultimately, you know, wouldn't it be amazing if you had a whole nation that operated on these principles? Yeah. And, you know, and we're beginning to see, for example, when I look at a at a nation like New Zealand and, and the sort of leadership that they have experienced in, 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 in the last years, and especially now under COVID, that to me comes pretty close to this idea of a conscious tribe, right? I'm, you know, obviously I'm aware that they're not everything is peachy in New Zealand and they have their own challenges and issues to deal with. Um, however, I think they've made a good start for yeah. a society that is at a very different point in development than let's say the U S right now, or also Germany at this moment in time. Mm-hmm. Mm. We were talking earlier near the top of the call. Well, first of all, I just, yeah, that's a, I can feel the power of that wish and that vision. What a world it would be if, yeah. if we had that. So thank you. You know, for if, if we that. had that, and I also feel having that again would um, be one giant step into a different paradigm where we're not guided by this golden cage that we've created around, you know, I need to work so that I can make money so that one day I can, you know, do this, this, this amazing thing with my life, but rather start now with doing something amazing that makes me feel alive. And then notice that if I uh, think beyond the boundaries of my own ability to generate what I need to live, but think of it through a communal lens, life also becomes a lot easier because in my community, there's always somebody who has something that I might need. So I I think, you know, now being sort of halfway through life in many ways, maybe I'm turning socialist after all, I don't know, but (laughs) there's some elements of that that I think really 
uh, hit a spot of how can we live a life where not everything rests also on the responsibility of me generating my own stuff. Yeah. So this whole idea of a sharing economy, this whole idea of, you know, I don't need a car here in Berlin, but I do like to have access to a car in Berlin. How can that be organized? And right now it's still organized by, uh, you know, professional Uh, services that I can that I can buy myself into in the future there might be apps that that actually organize that for a neighborhood where you know 120 people in a neighborhood buy one or two cars and then you have some kind of a scheduling system that figures out who and when uh, you know you you can use these cars you know I think that would be an amazing use of technology and I think that will come so to think of resources as something that stays in flow rather something that you accumulate and lock away, whether that's money, um, you know, or gadgets or household items that you might not need all the time, like a car. Yeah. So those are things that I, that I get quite excited thinking about. I love it. I can feel the excitement and I'm just, I'm, Uh, we only have a few more minutes, but I want to point out, sort of speak to maybe the folks who you've you mentioned who are like, oh, well, that sounds all well and good, this beautiful world where you step into flow. But what about the the, the have nots? And, the, and it's sort of like the, the crazy thing is that our fear of stepping into flow is the very thing that's producing the cycle of have and have nots. And what if everyone who had... What if everyone who had in a way that was totally abundant and didn't and didn't actually ask them to, you know, really truly sacrifice everything, but just essentially like let's uncage everything that we've caged up, including ourselves, especially ourselves, mm. so that we can start getting stuff flowing again. Because that beautiful car you have, no matter how good you take care of it, you're gonna die and it's gonna stop working at some point. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe you've only put 10 miles on it because it's just so nice you couldn't even imagine driving it. Like what that what a tragedy it is. It's sort of an analogy for this yeah. life that so many of us live. It's like we're super powered cars that are locked away inside these tiny little garages. Yeah, not even to speak of one super powered car, right? When I look at the the current um, statistics and, and uh, you know, recently I read in The Guardian that the billionaires of this world actually became 50% um, more affluent during yeah. uh, the year of COVID. And, yeah. and I think of the insanity that that is, right? Who needs 147 billion anything? Like, <laughs> what are you going to do with that? How is that? How is that making you feel more alive? Yeah. So there's something about, you know, I, I do think money work is essential for people who have money, because if you have that much money, and you haven't done something pretty amazing with it in your life in terms of, you know, creating something for the environment or for more inclusivity or, you know, any sort of social cause, then I would say you have an issue with money. Mm. And it's worth looking at that mm. because you actually mm. believe that having all of this money is going to do anything for you. Um, at the same time, coming back to the question of those who you know, are not that privileged or not no, need, nowhere close to that privileged even. Um, what does this approach to internal inner work do for them? And the first thing I, of course, want to acknowledge is that I, I you know, I do know and I do understand that we always have uh, sort of the structure and the, the consciousness, right? So these two layers always exist and sort of coexist and intermingle with one another. So on the one hand, of course, there are structural inequalities, and I do believe we need to find ways of fixing them. And poor people on this planet are probably at this moment in time not in a position to do that. However, if they band up, right, and realize that there is power in numbers, of course they have ways to influence that, mm. at least in, in, you know, in places where we can have elections and, and you know, useful democratic tools like that. Mm. But also I believe inner work for people who have very little frees them to become more influential as a player in this bigger system. Mm. So my firm belief is that inner work is an essential piece of social progress, whether you have money or don't have money. And it sounds like you're standing for a world where as many people as possible have the conscious space 
to engage with that inner work in a way that serves them. Absolutely. Right? You know, that's the, the reason why I founded my company, Conscious You. That's why we run the programs that we run in organizations. They're all aimed at getting a level of awareness into existing systems that frees people to, yeah, to, to unfold their potential and be who they can be and contribute to life and enjoy being in flow with life. Mm. Mm. Wow, Nadia, this is beautiful. Do you have, we're at time, so I want to check in. Yeah. I have like one more question that I could ask, but if we need to wrap up now, this that's a beautiful place to wrap, so. I'm okay with one more question. Okay, great. <laughs> you said something near the top of the call. I'm remembering it as this idea that basically our place of suffering, if we have four choices, love it, leave it, change it, or suffer it, that most of us, whether we're conscious of it or not, stay in suffering because it's familiar. And so, so implied in that statement then is the idea that the unfamiliar is scary. Um, the unknown is scary. And, and I'm thinking in particular of someone, I'm actually thinking of two separate people. I've had two versions of this experience with people who I've crossed paths with where, where they seem to be right at the edge of that awareness that they could change something and, and literally verbatim um, I'm sort of paraphrasing what they each said to me, but uh, sort of the, the, the conglomeration of what they said is essentially I'm not ready. Yeah. But, you know, actually to their credit, I think that's an incredible moment of insight mm. and, and also mm. incredible honesty, you know, mm. because that's already one step out of the suffering is to realize uh. I made a choice and I'm not quite there yet. Right. So that's also something that we talk about in CU Money is that I, that I want to honor the parts in us that keep us stuck in a place that might also feel quite painful to us at times, but they do so out of the need of protection, protection for us and our well-being and not fully trusting that we can, you know, that we can take it, that we can handle what's coming our way. So if somebody has the ability to say, I can see that and I sort of know you're right, but I'm not ready yet. Yeah. I think that's amazing and should be celebrated because, uh, you know, they're, they're at the cusp. <laughs> yes, I love that. And the part of me that wants to rush things just really needed to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> Oh. Yeah, and I think there's a time and a place, right? And there's also I've I've become quite humble in the sense of uh, you know the saying of "Don't push the river." Have you heard that before? Mm -mm. I'm no, no, actually please. Actually, sure yeah. that you know if that is something that comes from sort of native tribes, I have no idea. But I think it's a beautiful saying, and it, it you know, and basically mm. it's like yeah, you know, if I push the river, it's not going to flow any faster. So <laughs> things will unfold in the time that they need to unfold and I stand there to, to bear witness. Mm. Mm. That feels like a really great place to close. <laughs> to, here's, to here's to bearing witness. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Nadia, this is really special. I'm so glad we got to get into the space together again uh, after our amazing coaching sessions and everyone I just, for everyone who gets to hear this, I really am glad they'll at least get a, maybe a little glimpse or a little taste of what might be possible when we start to say yes to the unknown a bit more and start to really explore ourselves and our place in the world with more consciousness. So thank you for that. Well, thank you so much for having this conversation with me and um, I, I really enjoyed it. Thanks, me too. Andy. Me too. If people want to find you on the interwebs, where should they go? What's the best spot for them to check you out? Well, they can look at um, uh, conscious-u.com. So mm. conscious-u.com. Or if they're interested in the money work, they can look at CU as in uh, Caesar and then U for yeah, right. you, the, the letter U minus <laughs> money.com. So okay. cu-money.com. Um, yeah, and I'm excited for anyone who wants to engage on this journey. Mm -hmm. Me too. It's a beautiful journey. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening in. And thanks, Nadia. Thanks for tuning in to the Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from Kelly Sirquois and audio editing services from John Nolan at Middle Mountain Studios. 
The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find the Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love in the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world, while also making an even greater impact in the lives of others, consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on and keep the show going for as long as I'm able, but 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, the United Nations Refugee Agency, and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website, mindfulcreative.coach, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, learn about my transformational coaching work, and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now, more than ever.